Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. So, last week I kind of made a big deal about how I wasn't going to try to preach any short sermons anymore, and then two really bad things happened. I got chewed out by the children's workers for going long. I did that they were, it was a gentle chewing out, but they really went, would have preferred more of a heads up. And even worse, when we got to El Toro, it was crowded. So that ain't happening again. I'm preaching short from now on. No, I'm kidding. But I don't think it's a long message today. As I mentioned last week, we are interrupting our series on the Holy Spirit to talk today about water baptism. Now, water baptism is one of two ordinances that we uh, recognize in the church and, and, that, and that are recognized by most Protestant churches. And by Protestant, in this case, uh, I, I think that most of you are aware the two major divisions in Christianity are Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. You've got your Eastern Orthodox churches, etc., but the two major divisions are Protestant churches and, and uh, Catholic church. And most, uh, the Catholic church has what are called uh, sacraments, and there are several of them. Uh, and some Protestant churches have said, we only recognize two sacraments. It's water baptism and communion. Uh, and even some Protestant churches call it the Eucharist. But others would say, well, those aren't really sacraments. They are ordinances. And, the, and it all depends on how you define the word sacrament. In, in, in the strictest and, and uh, probably the most common way of understanding it, it is a, a ritual of some kind, a practice of some kind that imparts a degree of salvation to you. And that, so you need to fulfill all these sacraments to receive full salvation. And I'm, I'm giving you just an overview of this idea. And so if we call baptism a sacrament and communion a sacrament, we, we are in that definition, we are saying that these things are required to bring salvation to us. Well, we don't. We recognize them as ordinances given to the church by Jesus, things that we are to observe and practice. But we believe, and you'll hear this nailed down a couple times today, that the only thing that imparts salvation to mankind is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And our only part in that is believing it and confessing it, recognizing that the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross was necessary because there was nothing else that could save us, acknowledging that the death he died, he died for me, and confessing him as my Lord and Savior, believing that God has raised him from the dead. That's salvation. Um, but if we take a milder definition of the word sac uh, a sacrament, which is simply a means of grace. I can deal with that as long as we're not talking about something that is faith-defining or salvific. And when I say the word salvific, I mean what you either know it means or assume it means. Necessary for salvation. I believe. I'm not advising it. I would never teach it, but I believe it is possible to get saved and go to heaven without receiving communion or being water baptized. But there's no reason to do that because these ordinances were given to the church and we certainly should observe them, partake of them, practice them. Uh, 
if we view an ordinance as an obedient response to something God has said in his word, I believe there is a blessing in that, as there is always a blessing in obedience. And so as far as that goes, with a mild definition of sacrament, I can say I'm comfortable with calling them sacraments, but I'll probably refer to them as ordinances. So I've told you our position on what salvation is. Our part is to believe, confess. Uh, and by confess, I mean what Scripture means. Say together with God, to agree vocally with what the Word says. But there is little doubt that water baptism is closely associated with salvation. And it's kind of funny to me, not ha-ha funny, just curious funny, always has been, that there is little argument about whether or not Christians should be baptized across denominations. Now, some, they might practice it a little different way, but they, by and large, agree that all Christians should be water baptized. Uh, but there's all kinds of argument, as we have talked about um, in this latest series, about whether or not Christians should speak in tongues. And the reason it's funny to me is, yeah, baptism is mentioned several times, but you will not find, I have not found, any portion of Scripture that explains and teaches and expands on baptism. We see it happening. We see it ordered. We see it recommended. But we don't see a whole chapter dedicated to explaining this is what baptism is for. This is what it looks like. This is how you should do it. But we absolutely have that with tongues, don't we? In 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and especially chapter 14, which we're going to be getting into here in a few weeks. Anyway, that's neither here nor there for right now. When, when, he, when baptism is mentioned so many times, it's obvious that there's an assumption of knowledge. That is, the writer uh, is assuming that the people he's talking to or writing to understand what baptism is, that there's a familiarity there. And it, it's probably worth pointing out, too, that the meaning of the word baptize is not uh, or hasn't always been as straightforward as you might think. This is an example uh, of, of what's called a transliteration, meaning we had the Greek word and there was no equivalent English word, so they made up one. What's the Greek word, baptizo, or something like that? And so they, well, there's nothing, nothing that really means that in English, so they well, just made up a word, baptize. Well, what does baptize mean? It, it means baptize. <laughs> so, but looking at the different uses of the word uh, in antiquity, we can learn a few things. Number one is that it almost certainly referred to immersion of some kind. Uh, that we don't really see the word baptize used with sprinkling or pouring or anything. It is a dunking, an immersion. Uh, one definition referenced the word, and I can't absolutely verify this, but I've, I've seen it more than once, is that it referred to a process where garments were immersed into a dye, a, a solution that included a dye. And the idea there, well, what's that have to do with baptism, is that this garment would take on the nature of that with, uh, in which it was being immersed. And I like that picture that if we're baptized symbolically, what we are, we are doing, if we're baptized into Christ, we take on the nature of Christ. Um, and it's useful, that definition is especially useful when we consider that there is indeed a spiritual baptism. And I'm not talking about the second blessing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I just, I believe that when we confess Christ, when we are born again by believing and confessing, we are, by the Holy Spirit, immersed into Christ at that moment. We are baptized into Christ. And this is the foundation 
of all the in him realities. When we read in the scripture, in him we are this, in him, by him, we do these things. The, the, the foundation of that is the fact that we have been placed in him. We don't just try to become more like him, although we should be becoming more like him. It is a spiritual reality that happens at the new birth. How do I know I'm in him? How did I get in him? The Holy Spirit places me in him. God himself places me in him, this immersive spiritual experience. And that is the true baptism. The true, one true baptism is a spiritual baptism. Water baptism is still important, which is what we're going to be talking about, of course. Uh, the idea, of course, uh, when we're talking about this immersion experience, the idea is that we're not simply uh, collecting ideas that we agree with. This is something that is supernatural, and this is probably best expressed by uh, a scripture you're very familiar with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is a, that's a famous verse because it needs to be a famous verse. It's a potent, potent reality. And it's the Holy Spirit who does this, immerses us into Christ. That's the spiritual reality. Water baptism, among other things, is a picture of that. It is an outward sign of what has taken place on the inside. It is a public confession of what has taken place in a very personal moment. You make a personal decision and experience a very real spiritual baptism. And then your water baptism shows the rest of the body that you have now been immersed into the same body that they belong to. It's not just something that's happening to you. It's a joining of you with the rest of the body of Christ. It's a picture of that. Uh, and this is another thing I need to emphasize. There are many throughout history who have believed that as long as they meet certain requirements, usually of the church, they're good. We know better than this, but I'm talking about these are old. Many, many of you came out of churches that if they didn't teach it explicitly, they certainly uh, led you to believe it. If you were baptized as an infant, if you went through confirmation, uh, you know, catechism perhaps, depending on what church, if you were raised in the church. Uh, and, and one of the most important elements of evangelicalism, no matter what else it has come to mean, is that to be a Christian means to make a personal confession of faith, an individual confession of faith. God has no grandchildren. You've heard that, right? You don't become a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home or raised in the church or did any of these other things. Uh, all those old sayings, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. That's what Brother Hagin used to say. Or going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. That's a personal decision between you and God. But here we go again. We have to be very, very careful here. When we talk about our personal relationship with Jesus, that's really all we should mean. Our personal decision, our personal surrender to Christ. Our personal confession of Christ. When we receive salvation, we are baptized into Christ. And it brings us back to this very thing that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When you personally confess Christ and enter into this personal relationship with Christ, one of the things you become 
is part of something greater than yourself. And it's this, I'm not talking about this Eastern idea that we all just sort of eventually become one with the universe. That's not what I'm talking about. We, we become part of the body of Christ right now. And your scriptural, biblical, uh, spiritually right relationship with Christ cannot take place in a vacuum. You must be part of the body. You must physically assemble whenever possible. I don't think this is in my notes, so I might as well interrupt, interrupt myself right now with it. One of the beautiful things about baptism is you don't baptize yourself. Of course, spiritually, it's the Holy Spirit that baptizes you, but even water baptism, there's something beautiful about the fact that somebody else baptizes you. You're yielding to this. And, uh, and it's the same thing. It's like you need to have this done. Somebody else, you know, Paul talks about, and we'll talk about it a little bit next week, uh, there are people arguing, you know, who, who, is, uh, who is in better shape? Who, hey, who baptized you? Uh, Paul baptized me, Apollos baptized me, and Paul's like, I thank God I didn't baptize hardly any of you. And he, I think I baptized this person, this person, and oh yeah, that person, but I can't remember anybody else. He just didn't, he said, this is not what it's about. But it is true that they were all baptized by someone. And it's also true, like I, I can be a little harsh here because we have so many options and so few threats, so few things legitimately keeping us from assembling. And uh, it's not something that's supposed to be optional, but the fact is, we know there are some places where people are unable to assemble, not simply because of danger, but because they don't know whether there are any other believers. They don't know who to assemble with. I read a, a biography, or an autobiography of a woman who, uh, Middle Eastern country, and she was one of these, it's one of these great stories where she had heard little things throughout her life. She was, a, she was raised in a Muslim country, and so she, that's all the understanding of God she had. But something was missing, and so she would cry out, God, please reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. And guess who she meets? She meets Jesus in a vision, in a dream. She surrenders her life to Jesus, miraculously gets her hands on a Bible and starts devouring it. And one of the first things she realizes is, I need to be baptized. Guess what? There was nobody to baptize her. There wasn't a single Christian that she knew. And she knew better than to go out on the street here and say, hey, is anybody else a Christian? I need baptized. So she filled her tub with water and baptized herself. Now, that's not the best way to go about it, but there are exceptions. It's the same thing. If you can, if you have access to a body of water and, and another believer, you can be baptized. And same thing, if you've got access to a church, you need to be here uh, just, you can't say, well, I know so-and-so. There was no way he could have ever gone to church. Are you saying he didn't go to heaven? That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm saying, why aren't you in church if you can be? And you are. I'm not talking to you, obviously. I'm talking to you guys out there in TV land. No, I'm kidding. I know. Thank God we have this service for people who can't be here when they can't be here. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have gone down that road at all. Anyway, I want to look at a couple scriptures that refer to water baptism, and I'll share some things with you about it. Um, but keep that in mind. There's, there's one uh, that we really do need each other. Genuine Christianity was never meant to be just you and Jesus or just me and Jesus, right? We are together in this. This is the scriptural expression of Christianity. Uh, it's the corporate expression, the communal expression, the church. And so uh, there's one aspect of water baptism, and I'll repeat these because there's three we're talking about today, but that's the first one, this 
that we are, as we are immersed into the water, it symbolized being subsumed into the body of Christ at large. And we certainly do keep our individual identity. Again, I don't want to make this sound like some uh, Eastern, you know, Hindu sort of thing. But our purpose, our true purpose and meaning in life is that we become a part of something much bigger than ourselves, much more, uh, yeah, that's, that's the scriptural picture. Let me move on. Uh, look at a couple things. Uh, and first here in Acts chapter 2, this is right after, this is the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches this sermon, and the, the people listening are cut to the quick, uh, what, what, what must we do? And he says, uh, he tells them, and here's the response, the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's fascinating to me, reading through commentaries and articles uh, about this, this very passage, that one of the biggest issues that gets raised is simply the logistics of baptizing that many people in one day. Some people are, and some people say, I'm reading, I've read this part in a systematic theology. Uh, but the guy said, this is clearly not water baptism because there's no way they could have baptized 3,000 people in a day. Why not? You certainly could. How many people are doing the baptizing? 120. Each one of them could baptize 30 people, a little less than 30 people. How long, how long does it take to baptize one person? Okay. Uh, so as, as far as the number of people, it's absolutely doable in maybe an hour, maybe two hours. They can get it done easily. Uh, but his whole point was, this, this guy wasn't comfortable, obviously, with equating salvation with baptism. But there is a, they're not equal, but they're very, very closely connected. Uh, a bigger question might be, well, where did they baptize them? And there's all sorts of struggles there about how far it would have been legal for them to walk, uh, the, the labor that was involved, uh, because they could have just gone outside of town to a, uh, any sort of body of water, a river, uh, but more likely probably is the pools they had there in town. There, there were different pools, uh, bodies of water. Uh, even right there at the temple, they had the, the mikvehs. I don't know if you've heard of these, these ritual baths that, that, that these the Jewish people would go. They were required to walk through these things before they went into the temple. It was a ritual cleansing. And these would have been available, and it would have been explained, just as Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, and therefore we don't have to bring our sin offerings to the temple again and again and again, this baptism was the once and for all ritual cleansing. We're going to do this. Most of us had, had been through some sort of cleansing before, but this immersion, this baptism is once and for all. And so I believe it was water baptism. Not going to hang my, my salvation on it. Ultimately, what, what I believe about what that, uh, what that specifically was, my salvation doesn't hang on that either. But I think the, the most uh, clear reading of Scripture suggests that it was. Uh, then... Um, in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip, this is Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, who is directed by the Spirit uh, to an encounter with a high-ranking Ethiopian eunuch. This man was a Gentile, but a proselyte to Judaism, and he's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. Uh, he was a worshiper of the Jewish God, uh, had not been introduced to Christ yet, and the Holy Spirit tells him to join himself to this man, and he goes up there. He says, what are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah. Do you understand it? He goes, how can I understand it if somebody doesn't explain it to me? Come on up here. Sit with me. And they read it together, and Philip 
picking up right where this eunuch is reading, begins to preach Christ to him. And then we read in chapter 8, beginning in verse 36. This is in Acts. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, there's a lot of cool stuff in that passage, but all I want to focus on right now is that water baptism was clearly seen uh, as something that a confessing believer should do immediately upon confessing Christ, receiving Christ. I mean, it almost had to be part of what Philip was sharing with this guy, right? He picks up an Isaiah, starts preaching Christ, and somewhere along there, he must have preached or mentioned water baptism because as soon as they saw water, the eunuch's like, ah, look, I can do it now, right? You absolutely can if you believe. And he did. Uh, and then we come back to this. There has been a lot of division over the years, over the decades, and, certain, and probably centuries, about the simple question, is water baptism necessary for salvation? Uh, and there are whole denominations that, that believe that it is. Um, and we used to have these, we thought we were having these deep conversations with our friends. They were somewhat facile, but, but they were important to us. Like, you believe you have to be water baptized to be saved. Yeah. Well, what if, we always started with this one, what if I'm sitting in a meeting and uh, a call to repentance is issued, an invitation to be baptized, and I, in my heart, I recognize for the first time, Jesus is Lord. And the pastor says, how many of you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yes. How many of you are ready to make him your Lord? Yes. How many of you believe that, that God has raised him from the dead? Yes. Then come and be baptized. And as I'm walking down the aisle or climbing the steps, I trip and fall and break my neck. Do I go to heaven? And I had people tell me, no. Well, you're kidding me. I heard a pastor. I didn't ask this question. I had had conversations with him before, but he actually was just preaching this from the pulpit, saying... I have, because he was one of these hardcore, you must be baptized. He says, I've had people ask me over the years, what if uh, two guys are traveling through the desert and their car breaks down? One's a Christian, one's not. And as they're walking, trying to get back to civilization, the Christian shares the gospel with the non-Christian, and the non-Christian becomes a believer. But there's no water, and they die of thirst before they reach civilization. Does that guy go to hell? Does this guy fail to receive salvation? And this pastor says, that's a trick question because God would never allow that to happen in the first place. God would never move on somebody to, in any circumstance to receive salvation unless water was available for baptism. Can you, if you thought really hard... Could you think of maybe a circumstance at any point in history where, that blows that out of the water? How many people, you know, they say there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. 
Uh, I heard the test, and, and some people, they'll tell you, yeah, I cried out to God because I was crying out to, I was crying out to my mother and everybody else because the bullets were flying. I was sure I was going to die. Oh, God, get me out of this. And then you hear about people, well, once the danger's passed, they forget about it. But I know people who had that moment, and they never went back. There was a well-known professor of uh, uh, geology out of Parkland. Very humble guy, brilliant guy. He was a tail gunner in the Korean War. And uh, he said he, he said he had no church background, no interest in God, but he was up there just surrounded by all this flack and these uh, bursts. And he cried out to God, God, if you will get me out of this alive, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And he did. He did. He just fell in love with Jesus and stayed close to him. Uh, he might still be alive, but uh, last I heard he was in a assisted living. I need to see if I can find him. And another guy uh, became a pastor of a Baptist church, had a foxhole conversion over in the first Gulf War. Uh, so these things happen. And while both of these men probably went on to be baptized, there was no water available. And what about, do you think it's possible that people cry out, or never mind possible, I'm practically convinced this has happened, where people cry out to God for salvation and then die in those circumstances. Did they receive salvation? The thief on the cross is exhibit A, of course. Uh, but, but can you imagine that God would say, oh, I, I, but you're crying out to God, you're crying out for salvation, but I didn't put that desire in you because you can't be baptized. It, it clearly doesn't make sense. So, and, and I'm thinking, um, oh, I told you the story uh, months ago about the 40 martyrs of uh, Sevaste, I think was the name of it, these 40 soldiers who were condemned to strip down and go out on the ice and freeze to death. And they could abandon their partners at, at any time, their, their cohorts. They could leave, they could get out, off the ice and come in, get a warm bath and be revived. And they sang these songs. Oh, there's 40 of us, Lord, see, see that none of us uh, help us, help all 40 of us to bear witness to you till the end. And one guy finally gave up. This is true. They wrote a song about it, but it, it's a true thing in history. One guy finally gave up, ran into the warm bath, and the guard who was watching this happen ran out onto the ice. He said, they're, 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 you started out with 40, you're going to finish with 40. And he died with them. But he wasn't baptized, obviously. Do you think God is going to hold that against him? So I, I think we look down through history, we look through the church, and there were people who didn't have the opportunity to be baptized, but that clearly didn't cut them off from salvation. Again, that doesn't mean those of us who can be baptized are off the hook. We should be. We need to be. It's a matter of obedience, and we're going to talk more about that part next week. Uh, some people would say, well, uh, and this would be on our side, we would say we're not saved by works, and baptism is clearly a work, therefore, um, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. But if you want to get technical, confession is a work. I have to breathe my breath over my vocal cords and form the words with my tongue and my lips to say these things. Is it my confession that saved me or is it the finished work of Jesus Christ that saved me? All right? So I, I don't think it's fair to reduce baptism to a work because I don't think anybody who thinks that baptism is necessary thinks that it is their effort that is saving them. They believe it's their obedience to Christ and the doctrine of baptism that he instituted and, and the church uh, that is simply accessing their salvation. I would put it this way, that I think water baptism, and I think Scripture is pretty clear about this, is the best 
and most scriptural form of the believer's confession, or certainly an important element to our confession. Is confession, belief in confession, those are the, the two, you know, if, if you believe in your heart, God is raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God is raised him from the dead. Those are the two things. But tied very, very closely to that confession part is our baptism. Can a mute person be saved if confession is necessary? Nod your head, yes. And that's how, right? Uh, we, we don't want to be picky about these things. We, we should absolutely be, our, our water baptism should be part of our confession. Uh, let's move on with this. Uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 21 says this, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth from the flesh, but an answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then there's also this in Acts chapter 22. This is when Ananias was ministering to Saul right after his Damascus road experience. He's blind and, and, and Ananias is praying and he's sent to minister healing and salvation to Saul who became Paul. And later on in Acts 22, Paul's preaching his testimony and he shares this detail and how Ananias said this to him in verse 16. Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Both of these passages talk about cleansing from our sin, but Peter explicitly states that the importance of baptism is not the physical water on the body but that this is a picture of our spirits being cleansed, being cleansed from the sin, the, the, having our conscience cleansed by a spiritual work, but that baptism is a very important picture of this. So we have two important elements. One is immersion into the nature of Christ, and the other one being cleansed from sin. Both are spiritual realities represented in water baptism. And now for the third one, and it's, I, I feel it's the best and most important. In Colossians chapter 2, uh, it, beginning in verse 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So already he's talking about something, circumcision, but he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of those, uh, sorry, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This, I think, is the greatest message in baptism. And, it's, and what's beautiful is it's not one thing or the other. Baptism displays all of these truths, being immersed in the nature of Christ, being washed uh, clean of our sin, and also being buried and, and uh, raised from the dead with Christ, our death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the picture we need to see ourselves as believers. When we say we're born again, we need to understand that alongside that truth is that the person we used to be is dead. Well, I love it when people say, uh, they talk about something, or somebody reminds them of their past, they say, that wasn't me. That was BC. I became somebody different. I'm living in the A.D. now. We consider our old self as dead, and the life we now live is what? It's Christ in us. I always, 
I, I don't think, there may be once or twice over the years that I've preached on baptism that I haven't included this, and I'm going to include it now, uh, which is just a little bit of the lyrics from a song called Watergrave, written by uh, Chapman, but made probably the best recording ever was by the Rust Half Era Imperials, one of the rockinest songs they ever sang. But it starts out like this. In my house, there's been a mercy killing. The man I used to be has been crucified. And the death of this man was a final way of revealing, in a spiritual way, to live, I had to die. Now, if I let a dead man linger in me, I might get a little idle in my ways. So I'm going down to the Celebration River, going to take this dead man down to a water grave. And that's a beautiful picture of baptism. What's happening? I'm going down there, and that sinful dead me is staying in that water, and the man that comes up is born again, a totally new person, made clean, made new by the finished work of Christ. Praise and worship team, come up here. Next week, we're going to look at one more truth about baptism, which is, as I mentioned, the power of simple obedience. Being baptized is often referred to as following Christ in water baptism. And there are blessings that are ours when we choose to walk in simple obedience. The other thing that's going to be happening next week, of course, is we're actually going to be baptizing a bunch of people. And I wanted to, uh, uh, I, I don't want to preach very long. It doesn't take long to baptize half dozen or so. But we do, we're going to have time for them to share a little bit of their confession. There's one more special thing that's happened next week, happening next week that I'm not going to tell you about yet, but it's going to be a super short message. And, uh, but I did want, there's a couple things that I wanted you to hear, but they'll work better with right before we baptize. This was important stuff, especially if you're going to be baptized or your children are going to be baptized. So look it over. If you've got questions, absolutely see me. Uh, and again, still time to sign up to be baptized. Meanwhile, the more important thing is, has this spiritual baptism taken place in you? Have you been immersed in Christ? Have you done what we have hit again and again and again today? Have you personally confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord? Stand up with me. It's easier to see everybody's face on a, on a day when the crowd is smaller. Uh, but even if I knew every one of you as well as I know my family, I would never ever want to assume that every single person in here is right with God. There's always this opportunity. And I would, I would urge you not to let anybody else's perception keep you from making this decision. What I mean by that is, I don't want to get up there and receive Christ because everybody probably thinks I already have and they'll be going like, well, what are they doing up there? That's, this is the part that's between you and God. And yet everybody in here will rejoice when you make that decision. So let me spell it out one more time. Every single person who has been born since Adam and Eve were created has been born in sin. We inherited that. It's called original sin. It corrupts our very being, and it will eventually, usually doesn't take us very long, that sin nature will manifest in sinful activities, certainly sinful thoughts, sinful plans and purposes, selfish plans and purposes. And this sin nature separates us from the God who created us for himself. 
You want to know why successful people kill themselves? People who pursue something and do something better than anybody else, you think they have it all, and then they blow their brains out or, or overdose on drugs. Why? Because we weren't made to pursue our own desires. We were made for God. We, were, we are always going to be restless and unsatisfied until that relationship is right. But the only way, the only way to make that relationship right is to deal with the sin problem. And that becomes a huge problem for us because there's nothing we can do to undo that or make ourselves right before God. Thank God that he loved us so much, loves us so much, the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I love reading that so clearly in scripture that he is not willing that any should perish. But he's not going to force it on us either. You say, well, what does it mean I have to do? God will tell you what you have to do. What am I going to have to give up? Some of it you already know. The good news is he empowers you. He get, we looked at this scripture not long ago in Philippians. He is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He doesn't just say, okay, you want to be saved? You're saved. Now here's a list of what you have to do. He is constantly working at, in you, changing your desires, turning you in, into the person he wants you to be, but also the person that deep down inside you know you want to be. This is where true satisfaction is found, not in pursuing your own pleasures or satisfying your own appetites, but connecting with the God who made you for his purposes. And you wonder, how can people do such hard things for God? They have found the joy that only comes from being in the center of God's will. But it starts with a decision. Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord? Are you willing today to say, I don't understand everything, Scott, but I understand enough to know that I need a Savior. If the difference between heaven and hell, if the difference between an abundant life, a full life, and constantly searching for meaning is simply acknowledging that I've got a sin problem that only the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross could take care of, I'm ready to make that acknowledgement today. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that he died on the cross for me, and I believe that God raised him from the dead. Close your eyes, everybody. I don't always do this, but everybody close your eyes. And just real quickly say, if this is you, just say, that's me, just, just by raising of your hand. I want to make that decision today. I came in here not sure if I was a believer or knowing I wasn't a believer, but I believe now and I desire to be saved. Just quickly raise your hand and put it back down. Anybody? Anybody up here? All right. You can open your eyes. I didn't see anybody. I'm going to pray this very quickly anyway. And uh, if, this, if I'm praying this on your behalf, just let me know. Hey, Scott, when you prayed that, I said amen because I needed to pray that prayer. Do me a favor and tell me you did that. I'm not going to, hey, everybody, wait. Look, so-and-so said this. You will want to tell people. And the best way to tell them, by the way, is to get baptized next week. But uh, let me just pray this. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love for us. Uh, and the, the path that you have made, the way you have made, the only way you have made for salvation. If there's anybody in here who needs to make that decision today, grant them everything they need to make that decision. That's your desire. So urge them. 
Don't give them rest in this moment. Let's help them to recognize that that beating heart is because you are knocking on their door, that you're, you're, you're urging them to receive this gift. And I pray on behalf of anybody who needs to make that decision. Thank you, God, for the sacrifice of your son. I, I desire to be saved. I want you to come into my life and take it over. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe Jesus Christ is God the Son, that he died for me, and that you raised him from the dead. God, I now call you my Father and rejoice in being your Son and part of the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, if that was you, if you just prayed that along with me, let me know. Let me know. Praise the Lord. You got anything? Got a song for us to go out on? Let's do that. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, Make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.